This week we beheld a horrific shooting that was targeted against the church of Jesus Christ because that particular church still called evil what is evil and good what is good. And we can be prone to think that that kind of evil can only come from outside of the church when someone would call evil what is good and good what is evil. And we see that all around us today. But as we come to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we find God's people themselves calling what is good evil and calling evil good. The prophet Malachi is God's last word. God's final word to the Old Testament people of God. The external, visible community of God. Before 400 years of prophetic silence is going to fall. Where there is no more word spoken to this stubborn and hard hearted people. Malachi is God's final message to a people that refuse to hear and see. We're going to look at Malachi, this last book. It's only four chapters. We're going to look at it with three points this morning. I won't give you all the points ahead of time, but the first point is this, is Malachi is God's final word to Old Testament Israel. Okay, so point number one, Malachi is God's final word to Old Testament Israel. The context of Malachi is about a hundred years after Cyrus's decree Just a hundred years before this was written, God's people were in exile in Babylon. And then King Cyrus, when he defeated the Babylonians, issued this decree to let the Lord's temple be rebuilt. So as Malachi comes onto the scene, we're in the mid-5th century, so the mid-400s B.C., probably a contemporary of Ezra as well. The temple, we believe, was already built at this time because the, there's an implied existence of the temple in Malachi chapter 1 and 3. They're offering sacrifices on the altar. Everything seems to be rebuilt. That's why most scholars see Malachi here as the last prophet. And as I said already, this is God's final message to these people before 400 years, over 400 years of prophetic Silence falls. Where God no longer speaks, there's just silence in the Judean wilderness. The problem addressed in Malachi is dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy. The the temple's rebuilt. They're doing the things, but their hearts are far from God. Not even a hundred years after their deliverance, their redemption, their hearts are far from God 
once again. To put the problem in another way, it's covenant infidelity. They are breaking God's covenant once more. The lesson of exile taught them nothing. 100 years later. The covenants evoked that they have broken in this book are the covenant with Jacob, God's covenant with Jacob. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. God's covenant with Levi to keep the priestly sacrifices. That covenant is evoked in chapter 2. God's covenant of marriage, they broke as well. They forsook the wives of their youth in chapter 2. And the covenant of Moses is reaffirmed in chapter 4. And these are all the things that they're, they're breaking. When we talk about covenant, we, I don't have time to give you a whole talk on covenant theology, but God revealed himself in different ways and in different times, and these are called covenants. And at the same time, we can, re, we can view all the covenants working together as what we call as a theological term, the covenants of grace. But that's going to be a discussion for another time. Or you can talk to Gideon after the service if you want a little more on that. But at any rate, all these covenants that God gave to Israel to keep, they are breaking. They are breaking the covenants. So what's going on then in Malachi's day? When we come to Malachi, it's actually in the form of an argument. The whole book is an argument. Israel is disputing with God. And in Malachi, we find God's response. But Malachi is structured by nine arguments. Nine times there's this repeated phrase that the Lord says to Israel, but you say, but you say. So nine times throughout the book, there's this, but you say, and then God, and then he says what Israel's complaining about, and then God responds to them. Israel's arguing, disputing, complaining to God shows their ignorance, their blindness, and their hard-hardness to their covenant obligations. They're flagrantly breaking the covenant, and their questions show that they either don't know or they don't care that they're breaking God's commands. Israel's core problem, their core problem, what's underneath all of this, is that they want God's blessings without God's lordship. They want God to be their sugar daddy, to give them what they want, but they don't want him to tell them what to do. They want God's blessings without God's lordship. And they whine like a petulant, undisciplined child when they don't get it. And these nine but you say is this petulant Israel whining when they don't get what they want. And like a gaslighter who slaps you in the face and then says what? And expects you to smile. Israel is flagrantly destroying the covenant and then complaining to God why he's not bringing them blessing. So what was Israel's complaint and how does he respond? If you see in your worship folder on page 7, 
we obviously cannot go through all of this in detail, but in page 7 on the outline, I have those nine but you says uh, included there. And so you can follow that along when you kind of want to think about what's going on. And I'm just going to give you a, a brief overview of how God responds. So what were the kinds of things that Israel was complaining about? And how does God respond? Number one, they're saying, How have you loved us, Lord? How have you loved us? Look at us. We still have foreign kings ruling over us. How have you loved us? God evokes, in verse 2 of chapter 1, his covenant with Jacob. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. The Lord says, you're still my covenant people. And as we've learned further on in Malachi, that God still loves them is quite amazing. It's, it's quite astounding. The second thing they complain, they say, how have we despised your name? And God responds in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Like, how have we despised God? They're given rotten sacrifices to the Lord. Then their next complaint, how have we polluted you? God responds in verse 7 again, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. The Lord's table refers to the altar. But it's called a table here in, in Malachi. And the ESV study Bible note was, was interesting on, uh, on this verse where it says that the danger of despising God continues in the church at the Lord's Supper. We see that in Corinth where Paul tells the Corinthians, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So as in a little while when we come before the Lord's table, check your hearts, lest you provoke the Lord to anger. Israel goes on with a fourth complaint in chapter 1, verses 13 through into chapter, 12, into chapter 2. What a weariness this is, talking about keeping the, keeping the Levitical requirements. What a burden it is to worship God. And God responds in chapter 1, verse 14, Cursed be the cheat. Cursed be the cheat. They're offering blemished sacrifices rather than pure sacrifices. You know, to kind of put it put it one way, they are where they should be offering God the first fruits. They're offering to God the unwanted fruits. It's like in the days when we still use cash, right? And rather than giving God your tithe, the first of your paycheck, you open your wallet and you find that that fiver or that one dollar bill or whatever your currency was, drop that in, right? 
clear out your wallet. Rather than giving God the first fruits, they were giving him their unwanted fruits. And then saying, what? A fifth complaint. Why does God have no regard for our offerings? We see this in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Why doesn't God regard us? God responds in verse 14. Because you've been faithless to the wife of your youth. The priests are getting divorces or are being faithless or are committing adultery in one way or another. They're being unfaithful. That's why God's not regarding their offerings. And they should know it. A sixth complaint. Israel says, How have we wearied God? How have we wearied Him? Chapter 2, starting chapter 2, verse 17 and following. God responds in chapter 2, verse 17, by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. And He delights in them. They're soft-pedaling truth, right? They're the classic liberal. Oh, you're fine. You're good. Everybody's good. We've got liberal priests and professors right here in Malachi. Everyone who does evil is good in God's sight. He delights in them. Oh, they're, they're, he's a good guy. You know, it's just like, a, again, an undisciplined parent. Oh, he's a good kid. You know, that naughty reprobate. I think of a, I think of a, think of a, when my kids were in the, the, Nor, the local Norwegian school, there's a, they can correct me if I'm telling the story wrong, but uh, a, a parent or a teacher told, took a child's uh, phone or device or something and the kids started kicking and swearing. Is that right, Will? The, this is the computer? Yeah. And you can't do anything about that in the Norwegian school system. So there you go, right? That's, that's what's going on. Oh, he's a good kid. You're fine. God doesn't call that sin anymore. That's the way they, that's, that's the old moral system. God's different now. God accepts all this now. Right? You could hear any silly professor say that those same stupid words today. There's nothing new under the sun. Liberalism is not progressive. It's as old as the garden. And it's right here in Malachi. A seventh complaint. How shall we return to God? Chapter 3, verse 6. And God says, will a man rob God? Chapter 3, verse 8. And then Israel responds, how have we robbed you? God responds in your tithes and contributions. They weren't giving God his due. Then in a ninth and final complaint, chapter 3, verse 13 and following, How have we spoken against you? And God says in verse 14, You have said it is vain to serve God. It is vain to serve God. 
the priests. Here's, we've got the Unitarians, right? The Unitarian Universalists. You know, you can go any way you want to go, right? Nicholas, you're smiling. How many professors that you, do you have that would fit this bill? At least three. At least three in your seminary. Yeah. Here we are. We're in Stavanger, right? We're in a lot of dead denominations right here. And then they have the gall to say, where's the God of justice defending our cause? Let me give you a summary then of Israel's core sins or covenant violations. Number one, ingratitude. Number one, ingratitude. They were questioning God's love. Even when he has been merciful and long-suffering for centuries and millennia dealing with these people. They have the gall to question God's love. Even after rescuing them from the Babylonians through the brutality of the Persians who set them free, they have the gall to question His love. Number two, irreverence. Irreverence. They're cheating God and then saying, What? Why would God be upset with me? They're not giving him his due. They're soft peddling sin and calling evil good. There's no greater irreverence, lack of fear for God than that. So, ingratitude, irreverence. And number three, Infidelity, infidelity, breaking the covenant vows of marriage, as even the priests were doing, is symptomatic of breaking God's covenant. Right? The reason that we ought to be faithful to our wives is to illustrate God's covenant love. And to be faithful to God. Ultimately, when you break your marriage vows, you're not being faithless to your wife, but to God. Here also is in Malachi's why we refer to marriage as a covenant, because it's referred to as a covenant. It, and a covenant is not something that's just made between two peoples. There's three parties. There's a witness. And in that case, it's God. It's the husband, the wife, and God. So Israel suffers from ingratitude, irreverence, and infidelity. And that is why God is not blessing them. Because they love those things and can't even see that it's wrong. Or they've stopped caring. We're not given their exact motives. But the consequence then of the post-exilic community's evil and doing the same things that everybody did before them is spoken of in Malachi 3, verse 1, going a little ways into verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And then down in verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So how do we apply this as a, as a church? I mean, think about Like I said, this is Stavanger. It's Chicago. You know, name, name the place. It's particularly in the West. This is what's going on. Sadly, even in so many of the denominations and seminaries. And the history of the church is strewn with fallen denominations and fallen churches. How do we apply this here to us? Like a great text that connects to this call to fear God. And the warning in worship is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29, where the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So as the Israelites were looking at the altar and the fire, burning on the altar, that when they offered the sacrifices on it, that blaze consumed the sacrifice. That was a symbol to Israel of what would happen to them in judgment if they forsook the covenant. God is a consuming fire, the fire that consumes on the altar. And in a little while we come to the table we remember that Christ was consumed on the cross for our sins. He stood in our place. And that as long as we come to God in Christ, we walk through the flames unharmed. But if we come to God in an unworthy manner, in an irreverent manner, without Christ, those same flames consume us. That's why when we worship, we're not standing around giggling. There's joy. There's delight in God. I hope we all experience that. But we worship God with reverence 
and awe because he's a consuming fire. And he's about to come down and destroy the whole old system to prepare the way for Christ. And if it weren't for God's future messenger, we would all perish. Let's go to our second point. Malachi writes of God's future messenger. Malachi writes of God's future messenger. Do you know what the name of Malachi, you know what it means? Malachi's name means messenger. So it's fitting in this last message to Israel that the the bearer of the message has the same name. God likes to do that kind of thing. Malachi means my messenger. In this way, Malachi prefigures John the Baptist, who is going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. And Malachi and John the Baptist will be in the future, contrast the unfaithful priests who are spoken of in chapter 2, verse 7. In Malachi 2, verse 7, God says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But the priests abandon the message, all the things we just talked about in the first point. And again, that's what we see in so many places, even from pulpits and seminaries today. Those that should be the Lord's messenger have abandoned it. And the judgment will be all the greater for those who do. So God is going to send a new messenger before the day of the Lord comes. And you read in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We already read this a little bit earlier, but the Lord in this coming is going to draw near for judgment. There's going to be a lot of people that will not stand and did not stand in the day of his coming and will not in the day of the second coming. But there is a note of hope for the people of God. God has always had people even in the days of the prophets, as, as the Lord said in one place, Behold, I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So even when a whole nation, when a whole external church, a whole external congregation, the whole external people of God are going astray, God has always reserved for himself a true people. And Malachi gives hope. In chapter 4, as God speaks through this last messenger, in chapter 4, verse 2, But for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing 
in its wings. And then Malachi ends in verse 5 with the promise of Elijah's coming. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And beloved, the Elijah to come is John the Baptist. The Elijah to come is John the Baptist. And why do I say that? Because Jesus told us so. We read in our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 11, where even John is wondering, are you the Christ or or is there someone else to come? But then after Jesus answers that question with his own questions, as Jesus likes to do, He talks about who John really is. And he tells us, and he cites from Malachi in Matthew 11, verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Jesus is quoting straight from Malachi, saying, This is John the Baptist, right? And in the end, in 11, verse 13, Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, verse 14, excuse me, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He is the Elijah to come. This, by the way, just a a short excursus, is why we read the Old Testament and we refer to it as Christ concealed because it's not always clear where Jesus is. But the New Testament is Christ revealed. And Jesus showed, like, for example, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how all the law and the prophets and Psalms speak of him. And the whole New Testament make, continually makes connections to the old, showing us how Jesus was foretold. And so when we read the Old Testament, the literal reading, some people say, well, I read the Bible literally. The literal reading of Malachi 4, 5, that Elijah's coming is John the Baptist. So we need the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament rightly. And Jesus kindly helps us do that here in Matthew chapter 11. If you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. He who has ears to hear Let him hear. So if we want to hear the Old Testament, right, we have to be willing to accept the New Testament and let that define the terms. End of excursus. So John prepared the way for Christ. Or put another way, John prepared the way for God's final word for all ages. So number three, our third and final point, Jesus is God's final word for all ages. And in this point, I'm going to move into 
New Testament reflection then on who the Elijah to come was preparing the way for. And we'll see how Jesus is God's final word. So sorry, Mormons. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, other cults. Sorry, Seventh-day Adventists. We're going to talk about how Jesus is the final word. John came and he preached repentance as the Elijah to come. And not only that, he baptized God's own son. Remember that? How intimidated would you be to baptize Jesus? John didn't even think he was supposed to do it. But Jesus says, you must, for this is to fulfill all righteousness. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, the Father speaks again and says, Listen to him. Because he's the final word. Hebrews 1 tells us so, that Jesus is the final word for all ages. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Hebrews says we are in the last days. Do you know that the last days have lasted 2,000 years? We are in the last days, and in these last days, God spoke to us by his Son. And the apostles understood that this was the final word. For example, Jude, Jesus' own brother, I would love, by the way, another excursus. I would, I would love to see how both Jude and James came to Christ. Because remember, his whole family thought he was crazy at one time. When I'm looking forward to hearing that story in heaven. But Jesus' own brother, Jude, in his letter writes in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Greek is even better. It's the once for all delivered to the saints faith. The faith has been once for all delivered. There's not ongoing revelation. Okay? That's where the Mormons are out of luck. The Jehovah's Witnesses twist scripture. Right? Do you know that their founder... Made his own Greek trans or his own translation from the Greek, and he didn't even know Greek, right? And they come knocking on your door, telling them this is what the Greek says, right? Sorry, Islam. Sorry, Muhammad. There's no more revelation. Paul said, if if me or even an angel from heaven brings another gospel other than the one. I received and gave to you. Let him be damned. Let him be anathema, cursed. Jesus is God's final word. 
for the ages. And guess what, friends? We get to carry that final word today as God's messengers. Right? We get to carry the final message. What is that message? Of course, it's Scripture. But what were the apostles concerned with? It's the gospel, remember? Paul says to Timothy that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the message we get to carry. And getting back to Malachi, we're in the same boat with all those people without grace, right? That Jesus in the gospel dealt with our covenant infidelity on the cross. Right? Those curses we sang in Psalm 109 would be ours if not for grace. They would come upon us. But God bore that curse on the cross. Paul says in Romans 5, But God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And since we've been saved, should we go on sinning like the post-exilic community who is saved from Babylon and presumed upon God's covenant love? No. Paul has to deal with that in Romans 6 too. Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? By no means. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So now we have the privilege and duty to obey God's word, not as a means to save ourselves, because to save ourselves, we'd have to do all the law perfectly and keep it perfectly, and none of us have. Right? Just read Romans 3 if you question that. Right? But we follow God's law out of gratitude for what he's done. Remember those core sins? Right? In gratitude. God's law is a burden. God's worship is a burden. Now we do it out of thankfulness and joy. Remember the post-exilic community's problem with irreverence of giving, giving God the worst of what they had in the last remnants of their time. We have the joy to give him the first. In fact, to dedicate our entire life to him. That's what taking up our cross means. You only have a few hours to live and you can't really go play Nintendo while you're carrying your cross, can you? That wasn't a statement against any kind of recreation, but you know what I'm saying? To devote ourselves, whatever our calling, our vocation is, we all serve God, right? Whether you're an accountant or a teacher, 
or uh, a construction worker, whatever it might be, you ultimately don't serve man but the Lord. And then finally, not only were they irreverent, ungrateful, but that covenant infidelity, that breaking of the covenant, has been healed for us through the wounds, through the blood of Jesus. And that's what we will celebrate at the Lord's table. He made adulterers faithful in Jesus. Jesus becomes our wisdom and our righteousness. And with God's healing of those core sins, isn't it such a wonderful privilege that we get to be sent to bring God's final message to the nations, to the world, right? Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that final word of Christ. We get to do as a church, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we live in the last times. The day of the Lord began in Jesus' first coming. That's one of the things we learned. This, what seems like a one-day thing in the Old Testament becomes a period of time between Jesus' first and second comings. He dealt with our infidelity in the first coming. Now he's going to deal with evil in the second coming. And for those who fear God in Jesus Christ, that day will not be a day of dread, but a day of joy. I close with the words from Malachi in chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. We will be part of the judgment of the enemy. We will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then will come the day of righteousness when the new day dawns and the new creation comes. World without end. Amen. Let's pray.